Welcome once again to the Scotland's Choice podcast. Join us on the journey as we discuss the choices for the Scottish public as we prepare for the referendum. We'll talk about what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have and what we would and could do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry, and I'm also an MP in Westminster. In this episode, I'm discussing a new book, Nation to Nation, Scotland's Place in the World, with the author Stephen Gethins, and delving into the very different needs, aspirations and worldview between Scotland and Westminster. The former MP for North East Fife, Stephen Gethins graduated with a Bachelor of Laws degree, specialising in public international law and holds a Master of Research from the University of Kent. He worked in the NGO sector, specialising in peacebuilding, arms control and democracy in the Caucasus and Balkan regions, and for the NGO Safer World on arms control, peacebuilding and democratisation in the former Soviet Union and Balkans. And for sport... He's a committed Dundee United fan. Stephen, thanks very much for joining me in this podcast. Thanks for having me along today. It's uh, good to be here, Drew. Thank you. Stephen, your your book starts in the introduction with foreign policy being at the heart of the conversation around Scotland's future. And you talk about the EU referendum having been about Westminster re-establishing the traditional view of parliamentary sovereignty. That, that obviously differs from the EU itself, and yet this is met with bewilderment in Scotland. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I think this is the case. I mean, first of all, Drew, and it's a really good place to start because our place in the world goes to the very heart of the independence debate now, the independence question. And let me start by disagreeing with the SNP or some people in the <laughs> SNP. So, not a great place to start, but bear with me. We sometimes talk about Indiref 2 in terms of the next independence referendum. But that makes it sound like this is almost a continuation of the debate that we had in 2014. But actually, we're in an entirely different place with an entirely different debate. And that's because of Brexit. Now, why has Brexit changed things? Well, Brexit has changed things because you have this idea of English sovereignty. And I talk in the book about court cases with the distinctive ideas of sovereignty that exist in England and Scotland being very different. This is really important. But also, foreign policy goes to the heart because this is how we interact with our closest and nearest neighbours. So in the European Union, you have a union of 27 now, independent and sovereign member states who consider themselves independent. And in Ireland and Finland and Denmark, they see the EU as strengthening their independence. Whereas the UK has taken this unique and quite isolationist position of moving away from the European project. So the big difference from 2014 for me is that in 2014, Scotland was maybe doing something unusual, which was breaking up um, a sitting state. Whereas Brexit now makes the UK the outrider in Europe and independence has become a return to the mainstream or the normalcy. So that relationship with our with our friends and neighbours elsewhere in Europe and in these islands goes to the heart of our constitutional debate now. Indeed, you, you said that um, 
that the Westminster was re-establishing the parliamentary sovereignty. As, a, as an MP at Westminster, I, I haven't seen it resulting in much parliamentary sovereignty coming back. No, it, it, it hasn't, because there was very little that you can do now that you couldn't do as a member of the European Union. You had your own foreign policy. You could make deals with countries elsewhere in in the world. Um, and so I was quite struck, I'm, I'm afraid to say, and this is something that I think independent supporters need to learn lessons from Brexit. You need to set out a strong, positive vision of the kind of country that you want to create. And if you're a voter and if you're swithering about whether or not to vote yes or no in any future referendum, I think that you as an undecided voter are quite legitimate to ask, well, what difference does it make to my life? And those of us who are independent supporters have to set that out in detail about the difference it makes. Brexit hasn't made much of a positive difference to the UK as a whole. What it has done is it's made us poorer, it's made us mm. more isolated, Indeed. and it's made us much more um, less less influential than we once were, with, ironically, Dublin now being more influential in Brussels, Washington, and other capitals around the world than London is. And, and you, you say that we've lost that, um, that ability as part of the UK, but that's also impacted on what Scotland has had. In your view, has Scotland had a... A foreign policy. Does it have a foreign policy at the moment? Yes. Yeah, so I'm really struck by something the Tories have been talking about closing down Scotland's foreign offices recently. And I was really struck by that because Scotland's had a foreign policy for a long time. And in the first chapter of the book, I talk about Scotland's foreign policy historically, you know, the way that we interacted with our friends and neighbours up until the Treaty of Union. Um, and if you like, in the wars of independence, culminated with the declaration of our broth which was a letter to the un of its day the pope and scotland's independence came to an end in 1707 as a result of a failed foreign policy venture the darien scheme and more recently you've seen scotland exercise foreign policy um within the united kingdom so the tories set up a specific scottish office in Brussels with their interactions with Europe and on trade. That was developed by the Labour Party and I interviewed both surviving for former Labour First Ministers and it's been enhanced by the SNP. So we already have a strong foreign policy footprint in our relations with the EU, climate justice, international development and, a, and even Brexit and in a whole range of areas. And so if we have foreign policy and if we have an international policy footprint, we need to debate that and discuss it just as we do any other issue. Yeah, it's quite bizarre because the underline what you've said, the devolution had strengthened their Scottish external affairs, but it was it was happening anyway before devolution. And we now see Westminster and you know those newly elected Tory MSPs, I think the comments of Stephen Kerr uh, MSP were entirely baffling, uh, trying to remove those uh, those powers. It is. And what's really striking is Scotland's not alone in doing this. And Scotland is, and uh, so you get all technocratic, but until we're, we're independent, we're a full state. We are a sub-state actor at the moment. Now, if you look at other non-independent sub-state actors, um, like Flanders, Bavaria, the Faroe Islands, Greenland, Quebec, they have a much more significant foreign policy footprint than Scotland does. This is something that is perfectly normal. And if you go to Brussels, there are almost 300 offices of non-state actors. And what I mean by non-state actors are non-independent countries. So, you know, the Channel Islands will have an office. Gibraltar will have an office. Um, the west of Finland 
um, share an office with this, with uh, th their offices in Scotland House, for goodness mm -hmm. sake, as is the West of Ireland region. So there are all these areas that interact with the European institutions. And even just two days ago, or two days um, since we've recorded this, the Faroe Islands joined the World Health Organization as an associate member. So you see in a whole range of areas that sub-state actors engage with the international community. Greenland even is part of a defence treaty with the United States. Mm. And, and for Scotland, this is important, but, but it's also nothing uh, new. I mean, Scotland's been doing this for centuries. How, how deep is the history of Scotland's international engagement? Oh, so our, our international engagement runs through everything that, 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 that we do and goes to the heart of who we are as a state. And I'll just recount some of the stuff I've, I've, I've mentioned to you. So Senator Jim Webb, of the, um, of, who, who was a former senator in the United States and served as Ronald Reagan's Undersecretary of State for, for, for the Navy, talked about it going back to the time of Hadrian's Wall and that distinctive interaction that we had and if you look at the first thing that William Wallace did after the Battle of Stirling Bridge and the re-establishment of Scotland's independence what was the first thing William Wallace did way back in the mists of time well the first thing he did was he wrote the letter of Lubeck he wrote that to the Hanseatic League the EU of its day to say Scotland is open for business in fact it's the only letter that we have yeah, in the Wallace's hands and then of course that all came to an end with the Darien scheme, a failed foreign policy adventure to set up a colony in what is now Panama. So foreign policy runs through the country, has a huge impact on our domestic lives. And whether you're aware of it or not, or like it or not, it has a big impact on our day-to-day -day lives and who we are as a country. Well, I think you, you mentioned the, the, some of the, the things that we just take for granted. You know, For example, the name Fleming uh, in Scotland, very common, popular name, you know, coming, from, coming from Flemish immigrants, yeah. Yeah, so you've got the name Fleming comes from the, the Flems who made their home. You've got, not far from your constituency, Drew, you've got Sutherland, which is, of course, Southland for the Nordics. Um, Scotland has been described as a, as a mongrel nation, something we should take enormous pride in for having people who have, over the, the centuries, who have come from England, from Norway, from Pakistan more recently, um, um, from South Africa, from France, from around the world. And these are the people that make the country the place it is today. And that's a mark that goes back for thousands of years. And I hope that we will continue to be a country that is welcoming and open to immigration because it's made us the country that we are today. And it's made us the better country that we are today, enriches us as a society. And what, what in your view, is Scotland's enduring international legacy? So... What's interesting is Scotland plays a greater role internationally. We have a number of enduring international legacies. Let me touch upon two of them. One is we need to be honest about our past. Mm, Scots indeed. were proactive, um, proactively involved in the British Empire and in, in, in the colonies. And I was speaking to Sabir Zazai, who's a, an Afghan Scot, chair of the Scottish Refugee Council. And he said to me, look, if Scotland's going to be out there, as a full player in the international community, you need to be honest about who you are. And it's a bit like your personality. Who you are as a person has got as much to do with the bad stuff that's gone on in your life as it has to do with the good stuff that's gone on in your life. And the same for you as a nation. So you have to embrace your um, your history and how it's been if you're going to step out. And in the future, mm. well, the future's in our hands. And some of the areas that I identify that we could have a specific role, a niche, because we can't do everything, are areas that we're already doing groundbreaking work. 
areas like climate justice, where Scotland's led the world with funding on these areas, acting as a safe space in terms of peace building and conflict resolution, being somewhere that sits as a bridge between the European Union and and the rest of the British Isles and trying to re-establish the damaged relationship between London and Brussels, our most important bilateral relationship and our most important multilateral relationship. Mm. So in a whole range of areas, I think it's for Scots and for Scotland to tell the world who we are. But that's a bit of work that we need to be. This is one of the reasons behind the book. This is a conversation that we need to have right now. Yeah, I, mean, I think you've referenced um, such diverse uh, commentators as Voltaire saying we look to Scotland for all our ideas of civilization, civilization to Frankie Boyle um, talking about so many Jamaica streets, but uh, none of them celebrating the reggae scene in Peterhead um, there in your book in, in terms of accepting that there are good and bad things in our past that we have to learn, accept, um, deal with and, uh, and move on. But, but there is a really, historically, there's a different approach to, um, to Scotland's world outlook, isn't it? You said in your book about uh, Scotland learning early on about its inability to be a colonial war-making power, and you've referred to uh, the Darien adventure, which I think proved that. But in your book, you cite the aftermath of the 1402 Battle of Humboldt as a turning point, saying the Scottish political leadership came to accept that they could not gain their core diplomatic objective through warfare. That's had a lasting effect, hasn't it? It is, and you've clearly read the book and done your research, Drew, so uh, <laughs> it's just all, 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 always good. But that's it's a really good example. So a country of 5 million is not a country of 60 million. If you look at other countries, so Ireland, Finland, Denmark, countries that are about the same size, they see um, the pooling and sharing of sovereignty within the European Union and the idea of multilateralism that you have to work together with other countries around the world as being central to their independence and underlying their independence. Scotland will never be able to go around the world telling people what to do, nor should we. But what we should aim to do as multilateralists, and this goes to the heart of how we see ourselves, and because of our size and because of our history, is that in multilateralism, you need to go around and build friendships and partnerships with other countries in order to get anything done. That goes, multilateralism goes to the heart of the foreign policy of every other Western European um, country, with one exception at the moment, and that's the UK that's very much pursuing a unilateralist. Yeah, did you, you say you you say that the UK sees itself as a large nuclear armed country that can seek its own trade deals outside the commonly established rules that its neighbour neighbours abide by? What what are, what are the what are the, uh, the the advantages in the modern world of that UK approach over you know Scotland's approach? I don't know yet, Drew, because we've yet to see any. And genuinely, I, I know that you and I come from a certain political perspective where we've been critical of the UK and we're critical of the Brexit project. But anybody who is pro-Brexit is struggling to point out what's better. You've seen mm. trade deals that are the, the few trade deals the UK has been able to make, which aren't as good as the ones that the European Union can make, is that big block. And it was a good example in Japan where they rolled over part of the trade deal, but it wasn't quite as good as the one with the European Union. And in other areas, you know, even at the United Nations, I noticed Simon MacDonald today in an interview, who was a previous permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, saying the UK acted in its own foreign policy interests at the UN anyway, and, and the EU brought additional clout because we were part of that bigger club. But the UK has always acted in its own foreign policy interests, as incidentally do Ireland, France, mm. um, 
Denmark, Spain, and all the other European countries. So right now, I don't see what the benefit is. And I think this has to be a lesson. I'll go back to what I said at the start of this. Um, we need to set out the benefits and why Scotland should be independent. I think we owe that to people. Indeed. And, it, and it, it makes me think about one quote that I've got in the book from somebody called Malcolm Chalmers, Deputy Director at RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute. Malcolm's a unionist, and he'll vote no. But he said something really valuable. He said, look, if Scotland votes for independence, I want that to be a success. But on day one of independence, you need to be able to tell the world who Scotland is, why Scotland's in, in, independent, what are your values? And that's a debate and discussion you cannot wait for independence to have. It's a debate and discussion you need to have right now so that you have the answers. You do not get, if you like, a second chance to make a first impression on day one of independence. And, and can we look to our near neighbours for examples of how to get that right? I mean, I'm thinking particularly of you know, Ireland, a smaller country with less resources than Scotland, you, you point them out as having used their diaspora really effectively. And I think you say, yeah, Ireland has no nuclear weapons, it doesn't queue up invasions with America, yet in particularly with the American relations, it's phenomenally successful. Can, can we copy some of that? Well, I think, I think we can. I mean, I think there's always a danger. Of, so I'm, I'm going to say there's a as Mike Russell said to me, there's a hell of a lot you can learn from the Irish, and I'll talk about that in a moment. I think, first of all, we need to remember that we're not Ireland, we're not Norway, we're not the UK, or a mini UK, we're Scotland, with our own distinctive foreign policy, agenda, voice, and brand. Now, that being said, in Ireland, The Economist magazine described Ireland as a diplomatic superpower recently that has been able to deliver greatest clout through its biggest foreign policy challenge almost in its history being Brexit and it's delivered greater clout in Brussels and Washington DC than London has with all its might by that investment in soft power by using its diaspora not least in the United States but also in other countries throughout the world to apply that soft political and economic pressure and so even though it doesn't have as big a diplomatic footprint as, say, the British government would, it has been able to apply diplomatic pressure to pursue, in pursuit of its interests mm. in a much more effective way. And I think that's something that we can learn from. It, you, talking about, you know, how we're you, how the moment we're, we're set up, we've been using our, our limited clout in order to make sure we've got Scotland's international footprint out there. At the moment, we are part of the UK. In terms of our diaspora, in terms of our brand, uh, what has been the UK government's attitude to promoting links with Scotland's diaspora around the world? So very limited, which has surprised me. So, for example, Brendan O'Hara, your colleague Brendan O'Hara, um, the MP for Argyll and Butte, put down a parliamentary question, I think it was last year, and he asked the UK government what they were doing to promote links with the diaspora using Scotland's soft brand. And very little came back and they said three of their embassies had had burn suppers for instance which is a great way to engage with the diaspora and have that soft power for a burn supper um, and it's once a year so I'm not saying that they should be promoting exclusively something Scottish but Scotland has that brand and there were events were only held in the embassies of Latvia Hungary and Georgia mm -hmm. and then I checked where the ambassadors came from and all the ambassadors were Scottish and as somebody said to me from the United States said if, if, the, if the UK is going to stay together, why don't you play the whole team? And the whole team includes Scotland with its um, diaspora, with its international brand, with its profile, in the same way as Wales and Northern Ireland and, 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 and different parts of England have got a really 
um, I've, I've got many fine contributions to make to the UK's soft power. And yet it's something that's being missed. And I think, and, and actually Lord Howell, who's the chair of the International Affairs Committee in the, in the House of Lords, did a review of the book and he talked about, couldn't we be making more of Scotland's profile mm. and its brand and said for too long, Scotland's been taken for granted. Indeed, and, and where uh, Europe, Scotland has been able to kind of stand out through to down to, to quirks in the way that devolution was set up. But I'm thinking particularly of the fact that when you point out that when the the, uh, the act was being drawn together, they forgot about including climate change. So therefore, because it wasn't included as a power that was being uh, devolved, it was a, or reserved rather, it was assumed that it would be a power that was de devolved. We've been able to make. Um, quite a lot of international impact on that, haven't we? Yeah, we have. So the, the, the climate change is really interesting. So you're right, because the Scotland Act um, lists the areas that are not under Scotland's competence. Um, nobody was talking about climate change back in 1998 when Schedule 5 of the Scotland Act was being drawn together. So Scotland ends up with responsibility for climate change. And what's been really interesting is the way that successive Scottish governments have been able to just take this issue of climate change and run. So in areas like investing in renewables, we're an area where Scotland is genuinely world leading and able to export our technology and expertise throughout the world. On issues like climate justice, whereby we're able to take this idea that the poorest in society in the world should not be paying for, if, 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 if you like, carbon that's been spent to develop the richest societies in the world and we should be working together on climate justice. So these are areas where Scotland's really made some international progress, but again, it's where there's been a missed trick at a UK level. So when the UK blocked um, the Scottish Government from being part of its delegation in 2009 at the Copenhagen summit, UN summit, when Scotland was the one that was winning international plaudits, that's an area where as somebody who believes in independence, but because we're part of it, I think, well, why didn't, why weren't you telling, you know, for as long as, the, as Scotland's part of the UK, that's a good news story for the whole of the UK. And it's a little bit as if the UK government is scared of telling a good news story about Scotland. And we've got that real danger around COP26 and the climate change talks in Glasgow later on this year, where Boris Johnson apparently made clear to his ministers that he doesn't want Scotland and the first minister to have anything to do with it. Mm. It does seem a, a bizarre approach when you look at how the UK government could have looked to other nations, such as Denmark, for example, in the way they've engaged with the Faroes. Uh, that would have made an enormous difference for Scotland, but there's just no appetite for that. In fact, they're taking powers away through things like the Internal Market Bill at the moment. It, it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. I don't know what your thoughts are on it. Well, my, my thoughts are they seem to be scared of of Scotland's international profile and of using it. And if you look at other countries in the world, they include their sub-state actors. So in Canada, for example, all of the provinces of Canada were included as part of the trade team for the talks with the EU in terms of reaching a Canada-EU agreement. Now, that probably meant that negotiations were a bit more difficult, but it meant that there was buy-in in those negotiations from all of Canada's provinces. Mm. They all had Politically, and I'll say this, it also meant that when hard decisions had to be made, and hard decisions will, and that's the whole point in international negotiations, it means compromise and difficult decisions, it means that there was ownership from each and every one of the Canadian provinces. So a simple way of trying to tie it, and I'm not saying it's perfect, but there you see a really good example in Canada 
whereby when it came to trade negotiations, they tried to include all of the provinces and give them a say. Similarly, you know, we, we see similar activities in places like Denmark, Belgium and Germany as well. What, what impact, I just want to come back to Brexit because it's the, it's the big issue. Um, what impact has Brexit had on our international standing? Well, the UK has seen its standing in the world plummet. I don't think that's any great secret. We've seen in surveys that have, that, that have been done that UK soft power standing has, has, has fallen. Nobody knows what Brexit's for. It looks like a nationalistic project. And as I quoted MEPs in the book saying this is an English nationalist project by Boris Johnson. So you see that hit that's taken to our soft power standing. And that's why it's so important for Scotland to increase and continue to enhance its international profile. I think that has to be done because you have a first minister in Scotland with good international standing. There's an understanding of Scotland's distinctive place and approach to the European Union amongst our European and international partners. And I think that we need to um, continue to engage with the international community and we need to invest in that engagement as well. But that brings dividends in terms of our education sector, in terms of trade and our business sector and in terms of our soft power and influence mm. at the same time. Indeed. And of course, now we have Brexit uh, Gibraltar and especially Northern Ireland have emerged with the bespoke arrangements. Why, why not Scotland, um, who voted Remain but uniquely don't have special provisions? Well, this is this is quite striking. So Scotland has lost its membership of the single market. We've lost freedom of movement. That will hit every single sector in Scotland, every sector. And you'll know, Drew, I know you've been a champion of many of the businesses in your constituency, not least the small businesses who are so detrimentally affected by Brexit, because it does proportionately hit smaller businesses much more than the bigger businesses. And that costs jobs and it hits people's livelihoods. And at the same time as you've got nothing to show for it, then I think that questions, um, that, that, that puts a question at the very heart of the union. And it's not as if, and, and where it's European Union membership changed the fundamentals of independence. Because what you're doing is it's not a choice between the UK union and nothing at all. Mm. You have a choice between unions here. One union in the UK is not a club for independent states. It's a club where the decisions are made, broadly speaking, centrally down at Westminster, whereas we saw with Brexit and in terms of electing our governments and having nuclear weapons based here, that one part of that um, group of nations can be easily overridden by the wishes of just one nation within this group. That can never happen in the European Union because in the European Union, it is a club for independent states. So that leaves us with a very distinctive choice. Do you want to be part of the UK, which is sitting outside the European Union, where you don't have much of a say with the internal market legislation further centralising and watering down the devolution you have? Or do you want to be part of the European Union, which is a club of independent states, including a number, Malta, Cyprus and Ireland, that became independent from the UK in reasonably recent memory in, in international affairs, that does give you that right. So there's a choice and you can't have both. You can have either or nowadays. And so people, I think, are going to have to make that choice. And I think people deserve to make that choice. And that's why you know the SNP was re-elected just a couple of weeks ago on 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 an increased mandate to hold an independence referendum yeah. along with the green party were also elected on that mandate as well and of course the the eu as an organization is a 
entity didn't attempt to stop the UK using Article 50. Uh, does that have relevance to Scotland if we wish to use a Section 30 order? Yes, it, well, it does. I mean, look, first of all, in terms of the Article 50, there is no such... So, the, it was up to the UK when they triggered Article 50. It was up to the UK whether or not to be a member of the European Union. The European Union could not stop the referendum. The European Union could not stop the UK from leaving the EU. All of that is a matter of fact. Scotland has no such mechanism. Now, that being said, nothing is, nothing that's, um, you know, if things, something's worth doing, it's usually hard. So this is where there's a challenge for us because if Scotland um, has an independence referendum, you want that to be internationally recognised. Why do you want that to be internationally recognised? Because the opinion and views of our international partners really count. Mm -hmm. You want our European partners to recognise the independence referendum as valid and legitimate and an exercise in constitutional democracy. So that's why getting agreement with the UK, as First Minister has consistently pointed out, is the best um, route available to independence. And I don't see any shortcuts to that, I'm afraid. OK, how, how does the EU compare in democratic terms with Westminster and the House of Lords? And specifically, could an EU version of the Internal Market Bill have been pushed through without the agreement of, say, Scotland, as if, if it were an independent member of the EU? No, could never have been pushed through. So there are all sorts of checks and balances. Let me take the democracy question that you rightly highlight. I used to get absolutely furious by people questioning democratic legitimacy. Now, remember, the EU only has democratic checks and balances insofar as the member states allow it to have democratic checks and balances. But let's take them one by one, the three main institutions. The council that makes most of the decisions is a council made up of the independent sovereign member states, 27 member states, and their democratically elected governments are represented around that table. The European Parliament is directly elected by the people of Europe. That leaves the Commission. The commissioners are appointed by those democratically elected governments, just like UK gov gov cabinet ministers are appointed. But critically, the European Parliament has a say in whether or not to appoint those commissioners or not, and will often veto the odd commissioner. So I think a French commissioner was, a French um, proposed commissioner was rejected recently, so the French had to come up with somebody entirely new. Now, if you want to make it more democratic and directly elect your commissioners, well, that's a political decision. A lot of countries don't want that. I don't think I'd like to see that. So we have all these checks and balances. Counter that with what happens in the United Kingdom. Now, who's in charge of relationships with the rest of Europe just now. Lord Frost is in charge of relationships. Lord Frost sits in the House of Lords as a peer for life, as a legislator for life, having never faced the electorate and will never have to face the electorate. He is unaccountable and unelected. Now, when you compare and contrast that person who's responsible for our future relations with Europe and the UK, who, whether you like it or not, has a direct impact on everybody's day-to-day -day lives from the price of food all the way through to freedom of movement and how, how easy it is to go on your holidays or not. That is somebody without any democratic accountability in a way that would be unthinkable in the European institutions. Okay, but gaining EU membership is often portrayed as a real stumbling block for Scotland by those who oppose independence. What, what are the, the views of uh, politicians across Europe to uh, to Scotland becoming a, a a member of the European Union. 
So it's a good question, Drew. One thing that I did for the book was I was really keen to speak to as many people as I could. And I'm somebody like you. I'm a member of the SNP. I believe in independence. So deliberately, I tried to minimize the number of people in the SNP that I spoke to because, you know, I wanted. So I spoke to people across the political spectrum in the UK to Tories, Lib Dems, Labour members. But I also spoke to politicians the length and breadth of Europe. Some went on the record, some didn't. Things have changed in terms of independence. People get it in a way they didn't get it in 2014. Brexit has changed attitudes and perceptions. So there's an openness to an independent Scotland joining the European Union. And if you look at the statements of successive Spanish foreign ministers who have said, look, as long as Scotland achieves its independence in a democratic and constitutional way, Madrid would have no problem. And that was reflected in talks I, um, I had with politicians across the political spectrum in Madrid. And if you look elsewhere, there is an openness and willingness for Scotland to rejoin the European Union as an independent member state in its own right. That being said, politicians across Europe respect Scotland enough that they will not interfere in our democratic process. So that, which is something really important, you know, they're not, Angela Merkel's not going to come out or Emmanuel Macron is not going to come out and say, we believe in an independent Scotland, because it's not for Emmanuel Macron or Angela Merkel. It's for people who who live in Scotland to make that decision. But what seems to be clear that when Scotland achieves its independence in a democratic constitutional way, I cannot see, and there is no suggestion of any impediment of Scotland rejoining the EU quickly. Remember, there is no queue. Mm. Scotland's been a member for 40 years. We met many of the acquis communautaire. There are some institutional structures that will need to be built, but just like any other independent state. But we're miles ahead of anybody else and in fact as somebody said to me it is the only realistic enlargement if you like yeah what has been the experience of countries that are have been relatively newly independent such as estonia well if if, if you look at what's really interesting is the way that countries like estonia latvia lithuania see membership of the eu as protecting their democracy to protect protecting their sovereignty and protecting their independence. And these are countries that have seen huge improvements in the quality of life of their citizens. And remember, we're in politics really because you want fundamentally to improve the quality of life of the people that you represent. I mean, that's something that you as an MP do. That's something that will be really important and it will drive what you do on a day-to-day basis. And I see that driving you on a day-to-day basis. And for people like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, They became independent. They joined the European Union, which underlines that independence, and they have seen their standard of living improve. They've seen their security improve. They've seen the rights that they enjoy improve. And it's not just those Baltic states who are newly independent, but also states like Ireland, Denmark, Portugal, um, Slovenia, you name it. These countries who see membership of the European Union being at the very heart of independence, sovereignty, and building a better future for the generations that come afterwards. Well, well, similarly, there's a couple of things I want to cover just before we finish up. But similarly, you talked about in your book about uh, NATO. Would, Would Scotland be welcomed in NATO, even without nuclear weapons, which obviously we in the SNP want to, to get rid of. And I think yeah. the popular opinion in Scotland from all opinion polls that I can reference are showing that people believe that should be the case here as well. Would we, would we be welcome without those weapons? Yes. I mean, remember, there are only three nuclear-armed states within NATO out of how many? 30, you know, I um, can't remember how many there are off the top of my head, but I think almost 14. 
Yeah, there are a lot. There are only three of them nuclear armed. So, yes, we would. And the other thing is what was really interesting, speaking to people from the Nordic states. So, for example, speaking to a former British ambassador to NATO, uh, Marriott Leslie, speaking to um, Rasmus Peterson, a former Danish cabinet minister, they both made a similar point, which was, look, Scotland isn't Ireland. Scotland's actually really important to the Nordics in terms of their security because of the Iceland gap. We, 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 whether we like it or not, we sit in a really strategically important place. So our closest neighbours in places like Denmark and Norway would want to see us taking our security um, responsibilities. And remember, as a member state, you have many rights, but you also have responsibilities. They would want us to see them taking those responsibilities seriously. That means working within NATO. That means spending on defence and security, all of which the SNP is committed to. But I think that that would go to the heart of who we are as a country, a country that takes its responsibility to the security of our democratic neighbours seriously. Um, and I think that's something that has to be a determining factor. And it also goes to the heart of multilateralism. And again, being part of that club of democratic countries who are committed to one another's security, I think would be an important part of how we are seen in the world and who we are in the world. Okay, you've said that an independent Scotland's international outlook would be everything Boris Johnson's project is not. What do you mean by that? So Boris Johnson's project is effectively a unilateralist um, a unilateralist uh, project that turns its back on relationships and ties that have been built over the past 40 years, I expressly mean the European institutions. Um, Scottish independence would be a return to normalcy, to European normalcy, which would mean multilateralism, which would mean joining international organisations, would mean um, would mean coming together with our partners and pooling and sharing sovereignty within the European institutions, within NATO, um, within the OSCE, within a whole range of international organisations. So for me, independence is about internationalism. Independence is about taking your responsibilities to your neighbours seriously and is about building and deepening your um, your ties with your neighbours from a position as a partnership of equals. There is only one, you know, there was only one government on earth who thought Brexit was a good idea. And that was Donald Trump's administration and they lost office, which tells you right now, nobody thinks that Brexit is a good idea. And we have a job is to make everybody think independence is a good idea. And that means engagement with our partners. It means talking about our international place in the world. And I'm afraid that's a conversation that happens right now. You can't wait for independence to start talking about this. Well, that uh, that brings me on to uh, something I want to end with. A profound comment that I, I found was made by Kat Tully of International Futures, who said in parliamentary evidence that a key question Scotland should be asking itself is, what is your story seven generations from now? What would you see as a good answer to that? So what I'd like to see, what's our answer? It's a great question, Drew, and it's one that we shall all, all be thinking about. My answer to that would be I would want to see Scotland as um, as a partnership of equals with its European partners. So working together within the European Union as an independent member state, but critically, one that gained its independence in a spirit of generosity to our neighbours throughout these islands as well. So the Brexit years, I'm afraid, will be seen as one of schism and breaks of economic hardship and damage 
because of what's been done by Boris Johnson's government and the Brexit project. And I'd like to see people looking back on independence as being the period when we started to heal that rift, that Scotland acted as a bridge from the UK, our most important bilateral relationship, to the rest of Europe, our most important multilateral relationship, and in so doing, also acted as a bridge for the European Union to the Commonwealth in the English-speaking world and Scotland's diaspora spread throughout the globe as well. So I think our job has to be one of a bridge builder and being and our independence and being at the heart of Europe is something that seven generations from now, our great-great-grandchildren just says something that we just take for granted in the same way as happens in Ireland, Denmark, Finland and other similar countries today. Stephen Gethins, your book has been a fantastic read. I recommend it to anybody to uh, pick it up and read it. Can I thank you very much indeed for joining me in this uh, special podcast uh, today? Thanks, Drew. Well, there we have it. We need a new debate about independence as a result of Brexit and a strong positive vision of the country we want to create needs to be set out. Scotland has had for many centuries foreign policy needs, both predating and during the Union, and that has become more focused during the period since devolution. We've always been open to immigration and it enriches us, but looking to the future also means recognising and understanding our darker history, particularly over slavery and our role in it, accepting and learning the lessons from it. The UK is pursuing an isolationist policy and a hostile environment that's harmful to our communities and very different to the open, multilateral approach that Scotland should pursue along with other nations. We have unique challenges and opportunities and now need a refreshed debate on what kind of nation Scotland would be on becoming independent. However, we can learn from other independent nations of similar size. Ireland has been described as a diplomatic superpower, using its biggest challenge, Brexit, its diaspora and its brand to wield incredible soft power, successfully rallying the US and the EU behind it. And as we see, Ireland still has no nuclear weapons and doesn't queue up invasions with America, yet still wields enormous influence. In comparison, Brexit has seen the UK standing in the world plummet hitting our soft power and making it even more important for Scotland to continue to engage internationally and to promote our values. The EU and UK are two different constructs. The UK, as has been seen with the Internal Market Bill, can simply overrule Scotland and Wales. That couldn't happen if Scotland were a member state of the EU. The EU Parliament is directly elected by the people of the EU states. The commissioners are appointed by the democratically elected member states. The Parliament has a say on who these appointments are and will often veto them, if they aren't appropriate. Compare that with the UK at present. Lord Frost is responsible for the UK's relationship with the EU. He's unelected, sits in the House of Lords, is a peer for life having never faced the electorate and will never ever have to. He's unaccountable and unelected. Independent Scotland's international outlook would be everything Boris Johnson's project is not. Independence is about internationalism. Independence is about taking your responsibilities to your neighbours seriously. It's about building your ties with your neighbours from a position of equals. Stephen Geffen's book, Nation to Nation, Scotland's Place in the World, is available now to buy in bookshops and online. 
if you can share this podcast that can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. Thanks for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm-hmm.